48 Southerners, however, stayed in the Union and fought uh, on the side of the Union, even though their states had seceded, and over 400 alumni, which, considering the fact you're only 15 years out from its founding, um, is a pretty significant amount of alumni to have fought in the um, conflict. This is Purple Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. Welcome back to another episode. We're continuing in our series this month, October 2020, into the history of the United States Naval Academy, commemorating 175 years since its founding. And to discuss that today is Ms. Sharon A. Kennedy, who is a local preservationist here in Annapolis. Sharon, welcome to Preble Hall. Delighted to be here. This Claude. is not your first time here, is it? It is not. <laughs> when was the first time? When was the first time you came to the museum? Probably in the early 1990s when we moved here. My family moved here in 1994, and that was well before the big uh, renovation here at the museum. Oh, sure. Yeah. This was this was, but yes. <laughs> what impressed you? The impressed you maybe good or but for good or ill with the museum back then? You know, I had. Very small children. They were, at the time we moved here, two, three, and four. So and the museum experience was usually more about making sure they didn't hurt anything or break anything than really inputting into their knowledge base. So I would have to say that was really my memory of coming to the museum. <laughs> that's kind of, I'll tell you, that's kind of my memory, but more recent memory because so visitors coming to the museum will know that we, we have these large figures, these um, human-sized figures here on the second deck to represent the, the 18th century primarily. And in one, it reflects what life was like on a ship and it has you know examples of food and they're drinking out of their mugs. And one day that I saw this kid running around with a knife. I'm like, where did a kid, how could a kid bring in a knife like that? And then what I had realized when I went over to speak with the family is that the knife had been glued to the table and the kid had ripped it off, and I was like, oh, God, that's a liability. <laughs> <clears throat> so I, I removed the knife. It is in my office, and it is never going back out there. Sharon, what's a preservationist? Great question, Claude. So preservationists are people who are interested in making sure that the built environment that's part of our cultural history remains um, and continues to teach us about both our past and our future. Um, a lot of people think preservationists are about never changing anything. And what preservationists are always about is managing change going forward. And those are two very different sort of tags. And I am very much a proud preservationist who believes in change as long as it is well thought through. What's the background you need, especially the educational background, to become a preservationist? Passion. That's it. Uh, <laughs> I, I, studying. Um, I mean, I had an undergraduate degree in history just because my father was um, passionate about that topic, sort of in a very Catholic, small C way. Um, and so I followed in his footsteps. But then I went on and got an MBA and went to marketing and was, you know, the hard nosed spreadsheet, pencil pushing person and spent about 10 years in that career. Uh, before I retired to raise my family, and that's when we moved to Annapolis, and one of the things I wanted to do when I came to this special town was help manage that change. And so then you just start volunteering and dig in and raise your hand and you know learn, and it's great. What kind of organizations exist in Annapolis for historic preservation that you would belong to? 
So the premier organization is certainly Historic Annapolis. Um, that's the local preservation yeah. um, headed at the moment by Robert Clark. Yeah, wonderful um, organization. We've worked with them. Great organization often, yeah. founded by St. Clair Wright, um, amongst others. Um, and interestingly, was the Naval Academy went to battle with St. Clair Wright and lost. Why? Who was St. Clair, <laughs> Clair Wright and why did they lose? So she was a naval wife who had been out with her husband for 25 years and they retired here to Annapolis. And she took one look at the deteriorating downtown colonial architecture and said, we have to save this. When was this? Uh, let's see. AHA was founded in 1952, so I think she comes back right after World War II. Um, she was a young bride here in the early 20s, I believe. Um, so anyway, so she comes back and with a, a whole bunch of really dedicated people, um, founded Historic Annapolis. And in 60, sometime in the early 60s, I'm going to say, the Naval Academy was looking to expand. They were running out of space and they had built as much as they could out on the seawalls. So they thought they would um, acquire three blocks of the city of Annapolis, basically from the wall on Hanover Street over to King George Street. And St. Clair was very adamant that that was part of the ancient city, and she was by no means going to give it up to the Naval Academy, who, to their credit, was very transparent and said, and we intend to demolish everything which is not a preservation goal. <laughs> so um, she worked her magic, and um, the Academy in the end decided it was probably not a good choice to engage the community that way. Um, and l interestingly enough, in that, I believe it was the next year after that battle, the uh, Naval Academy itself was tagged as a national landmark historic district. So the was Academy there, started to understand about that. <laughs> was there a lot of opposition from the town or just a few people? Um, I think there was a lot of opposition across the town, and the reason was is the Naval Academy is a wonderful institution, but it has a mission, mm -hmm. and that mission doesn't always um, include the preservation of ancient structures. And so the city had already lost Hell's Point, which was um, a working-class African-American community that was taken down to put up Halsey Fieldhouse. It had lost the colonial governor's mansion uh, during the flag era expansion. Back at the turn um, of the century. Back at the turn of the century. So there was sort of a hangover effect is the way I would describe it, that, that it just didn't seem like a good idea. And there were really significant buildings in those three blocks. So for all those reasons, it turned out quite well. Were they, were they primarily residential buildings in yes. that area in Hell's Point? Yeah. They were, in Hell's Point, it was almost all except... I'm not sure where the, um, there was a Johnson lumber yard there, and there was also um, this the is, ferry landing. And I should let, yeah, people should know that this is right along the water. Halsey Fieldhouse is located right on Annapolis Harbor. Correct. And, um, and that was done um, basically by eminent domain, which doesn't go down well with neighbors either yeah. most of the time. Now, there was also a point where the academy tried to acquire St. John's. That is, I don't know the history that well. I know that is is in a footnote somewhere that I've read. Um, it, what's interesting, most people don't know, St. John's used to be a military academy. Um, and it was a feeder school to the Naval Academy, which is why it seemed like a good idea to acquire the campus, I guess. How long ago was it a military <laughs> academy? Um, all from the 1870s through the 1920s. Um, and then in the 1920s, it creates its great books curriculum. 
um, and they do a lot of, um, uh, they, they become a huge landowner in town, actually. Um, St. John's owned the Bryce House. They owned the Peggy Stewart House. They owned the uh, Little Bryce House. They owned uh, the Bordley Randall House. So they, they had a lot of real estate in town. Uh, they owned the, uh, oh, I don't think they owned Hammond Harwood. I think that's wrong. Um, but anyway, um, so yeah, they were a military academy for a very long time. Now, you've written a co-written a uh, important monograph on the history of the Naval Academy, which will be released sometime this <clears throat> month. Hopefully, and yes. And you co-wrote that with Jim Cheevers, our longtime. He, Jim uh, was here for 50 years hit at the museum. We, upon his retirement a few years ago, we named the Cheevers Gallery after him. There's probably nobody who knows more Naval Academy or Annapolis history than Jim. What was it like working with him? Um, well, just for clarity, I was the editor. He he was the writer. I was the editor. It was really my job to take the just incredible in-depth detail history of uh, Jim Cheevers and try to edit it down to a set of story arcs um, so that it was more accessible. And then hopefully people will get really interested in it. And then they'll dive deeper uh, because Jim has some great books that he has um, mm-hmm. authored and just you could go on oh, forever. Yeah. So. Jim's been on here a couple of times. Jim's coming back here in the next couple of weeks to talk about the history of the Academy a little bit more, uh, some more granularity as well. But just really a, a local legend. And even upon his retirement, they had Jim Cheever's Day yep. here in Annapolis. And he was incredibly generous. I mean, I would be, you know, yeah. down in the weeds and I'd be like, Jim, could you clarify for me what this guy's name was? And he, without even referring to anything, he'd be like, oh, no, that was Edwin Dennis. And I'm like, I don't know how you know that, but okay, thank you. If I could download anyone's brain, it would be Jim Cheevers. <laughs> I agree. Uh, it, what, it was, it's funny because, you know, it'll take us any, a few minutes to actually several weeks to research something, depending on the complexity of the question. And Jim, it was almost like it was the, right at the top of his head because one of the things that I didn't realize when I first uh, became director of the museum in 2012 Jim would tell me these stories about the class of 1910 and the class of 1917, and it was almost like he was there. And I said, Jim, you know, I've been through the files. We have a huge file room here at the museum uh, going back right to 1845. Jim, how do you know these stories? He says, well, I, I knew them. I said, what do you mean you knew them? He says, I came here in 1967. So these m- alumni were uh, you know, in their 70s and 80s, so that's why I, I really make an effort uh, to spend a lot of time with, especially the class of 50, 51, 52, et cetera, uh, because these are incredible stories. And I, I've just had it's such an honor to, to speak with uh, these uh, graduates from that era. But he, is, he literally has stories spanning 100 years. So tell us about the story, really, of why the Naval Academy is established 40 years after West Point. Well, it's a bit of a sticking point with some people, but um, the story goes like this. Um, In 1799, Alexander Hamilton, um, yeah, that Alexander Hamilton. We just had to keep saying Alexander (laughs) Hamilton. Yeah, I know. Exactly. Um, By the way, great musical for anybody who has yet to see it. Please see Alexander Hamilton. It's probably the the finest American musical I've ever seen in my life. It was really special. It was really special. Um, So anyway, so it's post-war, and he's in the government. And in 1799, so it's post-George Washington's um, administration, Hamilton pens a plan, like he has many, many plans, for how to create 
uh, institutions to create and educate a military uh, core for the new nation. And he forwards it to his old boss, and George Washington signs off on it and says, great idea, I endorse this 100%. And basically what he suggested was there be four schools um, founded by Congress, one to de deal with military fundamentals, one to deal with engineers and artillerists, one to deal with the cavalry and the infantry, and one to deal with the Navy. So the Navy was always on top of mind as it needed a school of its own because it had things that were unique to its projection of force. However, Congress being Congress, they could only agree on one. So um, on March 16, 1802, they vote for the engineer and artillery school, and that becomes the Academy at West Point. So that is why they're a tad bit older. Was there a specific event that leads to the establishment of the Naval Academy? There is one very specific event, but it, in addition to the one I'm going to describe, um, what's happening in this first quarter uh, to half of the, 18th, of the 19th century is a renov an innovation in technology. So steam engines are coming on. So the, the era of sail is dying, and the era of steam is coming on. And that means the kind of education and expertise you now need in junior officers is no longer kind of what you can learn in the school of hard knocks. You have to understand physics and steam and engineering and all that kind of stuff. So that's sort of a underlying um, movement um, that's toward creating a Naval Academy. But the event that happens is something called the Summers Affair of 1842. And what happens is the Summers is a warship and it's out on a cruise. And the uh, officers become aware of a midshipman and two senior enlisted who are plotting a mutiny. So they uncover the plot. They have a trial right there on the deck of the ship, guilty, and they hang them. And they come back to New York. And there's this huge uproar. And the reason there's a huge uproar is because the midshipman was a man by the name of Philip Spencer, and his father was the Secretary of War. Well, he had been placed in the Navy as a midshipman because he was a delinquent and a truant, not because he could help move the mission forward. <laughs> And so it really exposed the total inadequacy of the appointment system and the fact that there were no standards for midshipmen. And it was kind of like the final push where Congress said, we have to do something. And, and I, so I should, they I did. Should, yeah, I should add that nobody wanted this midshipman on his ship. In fact, Alexander Slidell McKenzie, who was the commanding officer of the Summers, even he didn't want this ne'er-do-well on his ship. But he was told by Matthew Perry, uh, whom, he was, with whom he was related to, no, you're taking him, and he's the Secretary of War's son, and you have to take him. So it would have been interesting what would have happened to Alexander Slidell McKenzie's career, which had progressed remarkably well you know, for, t for 15, 20 years, uh, had he not had that experience. Who gets the most credit for establishing the Academy? Such an easy one, George Bancroft. <laughs> um, he was the Secretary of Navy from 1845 to 47. And while there had been multiple attempts to create a Naval Academy, he kind of took the bull by the horns and said, I'm just going to do it. I'm not going to ask Congress. I'm going to use the budget I have. I'm going to figure it out. And I'm going to present them with a fait accompli. And that's literally what he did. So no doubt about it, he was the guy who got it all started. Why did they choose Annapolis? Because they, there were so many cities and towns along the, especially the eastern seaboard at the time, I mean, you're talking maybe the Gulf Coast, 
1845, you had May, you know, even the possibility of the Pacific. But why is Annapolis chosen? So it's a really interesting confluence of happenstance. There was no big strategy behind it, I hate to say. Um, the last attempt at a school was up in Philadelphia, and it was the Asylum for Retired Sailors. <clears throat> it didn't go well. Um, and so when Bancroft was looking for a place, there was Fort Severn sitting on the cusp of the Spot Creek and the Severn and the Chesapeake, 10 acre US Army fort. He had no money, so he couldn't buy land. So he was like, great, if I can just get it reassigned, I get the land free, awesome. And that's literally what he did. He got the Secretary of War to reassign Fort Severn from the Army to the Navy. Was it still in use as, a, as an active fort? Fort Severn was always manned, but it never shot anything in anger, even in the War of 1812. So, so it was active duty, but it wasn't what you'd call linchpin defense. Right. So, and it, and it wasn't something that was just sitting out there rotting away. No. It was Correct. an active base. It was. And so it was occupied. Um, and so the other thing that was sort of pushing in Annapolis's favor are two other factors. One was Bancroft's in D.C., and he wanted it close to keep oversight on it as a young institution. And so Annapolis was perfectly located for that. It's a one-day trip even back then. Um, and then finally, they really liked the fact that it was in a small town, and they thought there would be fewer temptations for the midshipmen in little bitty Annapolis than in Boston or Philly. Now, we recently had Fred Harrod, a long-time uh, almost almost 50 year span of teaching history here at the academy talking about the early years of the academy a few of the faculty members the a few of the class of 1846 but in in editing this this monograph can you tell us about the early years and what they were like and how they might be different from today sure so uh, the original uh, curriculum or course of study at the academy from 1845 to 1850 was you came to the school for two years in Annapolis. Then you went out for three years into the fleet for your sort of um, practicum, so to speak. And then you came back to Annapolis for a final year, and then you became a, you, you were commissioned as an officer. Um, that only lasted, like I said, for five years. Um, and then the, the current, which is a four-year academic with summer cruises, was brought in in 1850. Um, Back then, it was pretty Spartan. Uh, pretty much the only thing the midshipmen got were a bunk, a table, and a chair. They had to bring everything else from home. Um, you had to bring your bureaus. You had to bring your own candles. And the first year, you had to bring your own fuel source. And that created so much pushback that in the second year, 1846, the Academy paid for the coal and the wood to heat the dorm. So that was a was step that forward. Was that because the members of Congress realized that may perhaps not all of the midshipmen could you know, afford, you know, certain types of, of fuel? I don't think it ever got yeah. up to the congressional. I think the um, the soup at the time got so much blowback, he was like, fine, we can do that. It just was a minor thing, but it's just sort of, it's an indicator of how it took a while to sort of get the wheels up and running, so to speak. Um, interestingly, in those early years, the first year, 1845, there were only seven faculty members and about 50 midshipmen um, who started the Naval Academy. Yet they took courses in French, Spanish, math, navigation, sciences, history, writing, chemistry, ordnance, gunnery, and steam engineering. So everybody had to teach more than one thing. <laughs> um, so it was a pretty close-knit group. Um, and in terms of um, just daily routine, 
probably the biggest one of the biggest differences and this lasted until well into the 20th century, I believe, is they had daily recitations. So instead of lecture and then written exams or discussions or things like that, it was a memorization. You had to stand up and recite what you had been taught the day before. And that was the way you gained knowledge. And that's why they named it Recitation Hall. I believe that is okay. why they named it Recitation okay. Hall. A building that no longer exists. It was something Correct. mostly in most for most of the 19th century. Yes. So how does the... Civil War affect the academy? Well, the Civil War, as it affected every institution in this country, ripped the academy apart. Um, 156 officers and midshipmen resigned, um, and went. 142 of those went to serve in the Confederate uh, Naval Force. Uh, 48 Southerners, however, stayed in the Union and fought uh, on the side of the Union, even though their states had um, seceded, and over 400 alumni, which, considering the fact you're only 15 years out from its founding, um, is a pretty significant amount of alumni to have fought in the um, conflict. The biggest thing that happened, obviously, physically, was the Naval Academy moved. Um, So Maryland was a Southern state. There was a lot of Southern sympathy. The assumption was it was going to vote to secede. Which is why Franklin Buchanan, you know, who was the senior most officer at the time, submits his resignation to Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells. And then he asks for it back once Maryland decides, I think it was by one vote they decided not to secede, if I'm not mistaken. And he asked for the resignation back and Gideon Wells said, I'll have... Uh, you know, none of that. With, none of that in my <laughs> navy. So good luck to you. And he becomes the admiral of the Confederate Navy. Right. Yeah. So because of that, they decide the best thing to do is evacuate the the uh, the campus. And so actually, the USS Constitution at that time is here as a teaching and a dormitory. And so they load the Constitution up, and there's a uh, order from one of the admirals whose name escapes me at the moment, saying, if you can't save her, sink her. In other words, they were not going to allow the USS Constitution to fall into the hands of the rebels. Especially um, since we'd lost most of the fleet in Gosport, Norfolk, uh, Virginia, because you know, just a few months before, you, know, you have the, the USS United States and, and the USS Merrimack and the Pennsylvania, all these ships that were basically burned to the waterline to prevent their capture from advancing Confederate forces. Yeah. So the whole so everybody picks up and moves out in April, uh, and they go to Newport, um, and the academy is reinstituted in downtown uh, Newport and continues on uh, educating midshipmen. Um, they accelerate the course uh, in order to graduate more quickly, um, but they are there um, until 1865. Um, the campus here is returned to the War Department, transferred out of the Navy and back to the War Department, and literally thousands and thousands of troops are encamped on the grounds over the course of the Civil War. They're often um, disembarked here and then sent onward down the Chesapeake um, for further fighting. Um, and so that ha- that lasts until September of 1865 when the midship and the faculty return. And that's why for uh, local residents, you know, when you're traveling through a specific portion of Annapolis called Parole, now you've got the big parole center that was constructed maybe, what, 10 or 12 years ago uh, that was all built up. Uh, but it was the place where you paroled prisoner, Confederate prisoners of war. I mean, mm-hmm. you still have images of those camps in parole, uh, you know, awaiting negotiation. Uh, you have ben, General Benjamin Butler, who's set up here, at the Naval Academy, which again is, becomes part of the, the army uh, or an army encampment during the uh, Civil War. And the class of 1865, if I'm not mistaken, is the only class 
to go through the academy without without having gone through the Annapolis. I think because that's Because they correct. were they were all correct. up in they Newport. Were, they were in Newport the yeah. entire four years. It's almost like the, the Mexican American uh, monument here on the Naval Academy grounds, uh, which was I think it's the oldest Navy monument on the yard. Might be one of the oldest in the United States aside from the Tripoli monument. But it, the money was raised by Naval Naval Academy cadets that back then later midshipmen. And the four names of the midshipmen who died during the Mexican-American War who were on that Mexican-American monument on Stribling that every midshipman passes by never correct. stepped foot in Annapolis because two were already past midshipmen who didn't need to come to the Annapolis, and then two were midshipmen who on their way to Annapolis but got orders to go down to Mexico and were killed. Who do you think were some of the most consequential leaders at the Naval Academy? And this is a tough one because you've got... 175 years, and there's so many different periods of, of academy history, but who do you think are some of the most consequential ones? It, it's a really tough question sometimes to ask because there are, as you said, so many candidates uh, between outstanding superintendents, commandants, student leaders, alumni. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. it's a cast of thousands, yeah, literally. literally yeah. um, but just in the work I did on the 175th, which is you know trying to sort of stay up pretty top line mm-hmm. on, on the history, there are four for me who stand out, and I think... Um, most of them are pretty well known. One may be a bit of a surprise. So the first one is very well known to anyone who's spent any time on the academy, and that's David Dixon Porter. Um, he is the superintendent from 1865 to 69, and it is under his watch that the Naval Academy really sets its course for the next 150 years. Um, he starts the first major comprehensive building campaign um, in which he... he um, establishes the fact that we need a coherent architecture uh, of the academy. Um, And so they build a dorm, what's called the new quarters for midshipmen. A a new chapel is um, put up in 1869. That's the second chapel. That's the second chapel. Um, Academic buildings are built, again, all in sort of a cohesive architectural style. He creates a huge hospital, um, which has a whole other story to it. Um, he also expands the academy. He actually acquires 113 acres, which for the first time, the academy kind of has elbow room because uh, he's thinking long-term. He's thinking strategically. So he buys a couple of farms on the other side of what we call College Creek, was then known as Dorsey Creek, and really allows the academy to start its major expansion. Is that where Halligan Hall is today? Yes. And okay. Everything across the creek is on okay. what's... Uh, that expanded 113 acres. Um, the other thing he does is he brings to the curriculum of the academy his war experience, and he realizes that while academics are really important, operational excellence is what you need in junior officers, that when you're in a war, it, they've got to be able to be leaders. And so he spends a lot of time working on that side of the development of, of the midshipmen. He also creates a separate engineering course, so for the first time midshipmen can get a degree in engineering as opposed to just know about it. Um, He also establishes organized athletic competition for the first time. There have been a lot of sort of informal, but he creates what's now would be considered the varsity, um, and he brings baseball, boxing, crew, and gymnastics as the first four um, intercollegiate uh, 
competitions for the brigade. He also creates intra-brigade competitions. So he's the founder of the competition that leads to the color parade every year. He's also the guy who creates class colors and class rings are developed on his watch. For those who are not familiar with the academy or alumni or, or local, what is the color parade? So the color parade is the awarding of to the uh, company. Thank you. To the company. <laughs> I do that all the time now. <laughs> it's like it's not the regiment. It's not the, it's the company. So the color parade is the award at the end of the year to the company who has um, competed and been the most excellent for the year out of the 30 companies that comprises the brigade. And they get to bear the colors for the next year. And in the, it's the last parade of the year, they are awarded the flag. Okay. So it's a big deal. And that's where the, the color girl comes from Correct. because the company commander of each of those color companies, the, the, the one that, that wins, wins the competition, uh, we have a long history of, of uh, the color girls now, uh, now the color person, uh, who is recognized by that company commander. Now I think they've had a couple of company commanders who have had their mothers as, mm -hmm. as their escorts for the parade. Uh, but we actually have dresses going back to the 1800s in our collection. Yep. A number of items from from that. All right, so that's David Dixon Porter. Who's, yep. I mean, he's but he's pretty significant. He's the second admiral. He's not only a second admiral, but he's the stepbrother of da of David Farragut, who had been adopted by David Porter. Correct. Um, and it's kind of interesting because both both Porters served in the Mexican Navy uh, in the late 1820s. David Porter had gone there as the admiral. Who's the second one? So my second um, kind of uh, pick in this category is an alumni, Robert Means Thompson. Um, and many alumni will know him, uh, and many midshipmen will know him. Uh, but he was never the superintendent. He was an incredibly influential leader at the academy as an alumni. He was the president of Orford Copper Company, so he was a very wealthy individual, and he used his wealth on behalf of the academy. When, when would he have lived? Uh, I don't have his exact dates here, but we're talking about he graduates in 68, and he lives till probably about the 1920s. So we're, it's a 50-year period, the end of the 19th century and the first quarter of the 20th century. He's the one who spearheads the rebuild of the academy. So it's the turn of the century. The Porter buildings are uh, almost 50 years old, and they're starting to wear and tear. The brigade has been expanding rapidly, um, and the Board of Visitors does an audit and then they have a second board come in and re-examine what they said and basically what they come to the conclusion is the academy is falling apart needs to be rebuilt <laughs> um, and so it's means thompson who is the guy who recruits ernest flag the incredible architect who brings to the academy the bow art architecture that everyone knows and loves here um, and he is the one who just pushes that forward and says, no, we're just going to knock it all down and start over again because we have to do it. We have to be prepared for the next 100 years. And he's just, he sort of just leads the way and doesn't take no for an answer. And um, he's just a remarkable guy. Um, one of my favorite stories is about him and sort of is a, a, a window into his integrity um, as a person is they had a competition to design the huge chapel doors. So they're building this enormous chapel. Uh, bron as part bronze of the, doors, right? They are bronze. Yeah. And so they put out a nationwide uh, competition, offer to compete to design the Naval Academy chapel doors. And it's a blind competition. No one knows whose design is what. And there's a whole committee that 
means Thompson has put together of very learned people. And they pick the winner, and they reveal the woman, winner to be a woman, a 28-year-old woman by the name of Evelyn Beatrice Longman. And the committee members are aghast that a woman is going to be designing the Naval Academy doors. And Means Thompson says, no, she shall stand. It will stand. And it's just him saying, no, it was fair. We did the picking. You know, be quiet. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty significant. But, I mean, it really was. Era, yeah. I, I just think it's a lovely little tidbit that shows who he was. And then finally, the other thing he did, he um, founded the Auxiliary Athletic Association, what's now the... Um, Naval Academy AA. Athletic. Exactly. Yeah. Um, again, and there is something called the Thompson Cup that is given every year to the outstanding athlete of the year. Uh, for named for him. So he was a really seminal picture, excuse me, a really seminal person in the development of the, of the academy in the 20th century. My third pick is somebody very few people have probably ever heard of. He was a superintendent. His name was Henry B. Wilson. And he is soup from 1921 to 1925. And the reason I picked him is his contribution to the Naval Academy is realizing that character and leadership are the defining features of great military men. And so what he wants to do is make the academy a more well-rounded, more college experience as opposed to a strict military experience. Now that's not to say he wasn't a tough disciplinarian, he kicked a lot of people out on their cans, but he did things like he instituted Christmas and Easter leaves so that students could go home and be with their families and not be here continuously for 10 months at a time. So, so prior to 1921, essentially, midshipmen are here more or less for the year. That's correct. They, they come in September, they leave in June, and then they go on their summer cruises. So they might get a week uh, off to go see their families, and this happens for four straight years. And his whole point of view was it takes more than that to develop good men of character, and that's why we're going to do that. Interestingly, he also writes letters saying, if your child cannot go home because of financial hardship, we will have the dorms and the mess hall open, and they will be safe here. So it was a real you know, sort of shift in mentality. He also institutes something called the family support system, where he actually communicates with families. Before this, all they got was the yearly report card, and he sends out like quarterly missives from the superintendent to the families, telling them what's going on on the yard. He starts to re treat the midshipmen more as adults and less as delinquents under supervision. Um, so he allows them liberty for the first time on an extended basis. They're allowed to play cards. They're allowed to smoke. They're allowed to read newspapers. All of these things were not allowed Is this why in earlier watches. Smoke hall comes into being. In I don't Bancroft know the hall? answer to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, he and his wife have um, small gatherings at the superintendent's house to teach the midshipmen social graces, so they don't embarrass themselves or the academy when they go out into the world. He does all these pamphlets on how to be a good. Um, fiscal manager, how to budget, how not to get into debt, how to do exam prep. I mean, he just, he's sort of like this father figure who wants it to be more, as I said, sort of well-rounded um, as, as an institution. And finally, he's the guy who um, introduces speakers and extracurricular activities in addition to athletics. So he really sort of morphs the academy in that first quarter of the 20th century into what's going to become the competitive college it's going to be going forward. 
So my last one um, is uh, someone very recent, uh, Admiral Kynard R. McKee. He was superintendent from 75 to 78. And he's my pick because he was the guy on watch when women came into the academy. And it was not an easy situation. It was a heavy lift, mainly because, and I'm not trying to sound um, dogmatic, but as it says in the literature, the all-male bastion did not look happily upon the incursion of women to its midst. And he was the guy in charge who really set the standard and said, we are going to do this with respect and civility. It's going to be hard. We're going to have to make accommodations. But this is going to get done, and it's going to get done well. And it wasn't easy, and there were a lot of bumps on the road. And if you talk to the women who went through those early years, there were a lot of tribulations they had to go through. Absolutely. But he fact, deserves we, a lot for his leadership. Just a few years ago, so women were first admitted to the Naval Academy and or allowed to apply and admitted, uh, finally beginning in 1976, so the class of 1980. And we had an exhibit uh, commemorating 100, sorry, 100 years, uh, 40 years of women at the academy uh, just a few years ago. So if, if listeners are interested, you can go to our website, uh, usna.edu backslash museum, look for our past museums, museum exhibits, or look for uh, the term ability, not gender on our website, and you'll find photographs uh, from that exhibit of the items that were loaned to us, kind of loaned to us from the graduates, but also some of the stories the, that women have had over the years about their experiences at the Naval Academy. Yeah, so, so. He, he was my last one. He thought he deserved a shout out. The, that's a good segue to the next question because you know, you, you mentioned that it had been pretty much um, men here until 1976. What's the history of minorities and women at the Academy? So as you just mentioned, uh, women came in by, by congressional fiat. It was not something the military particularly uh, pushed forward, uh, but the Congress did it by fiat uh, in celebration of the centennial year. All the service academies were required to open to women in the fall of 1976. Um, I have to say they've made great progress in the class of 2020. Almost 28% of the graduates are women. So I think you know the academy has made significant efforts to diversify its um, on a gender basis. The diversification on the minority side um, goes back way further. Um, in fact, the very first African-American entered the Naval Academy in 1872. Uh, he was a man by the name of James Conyers. Um, he was hazed out after 16 months. Uh, the research indicates the faculty were very protective of him because many of the faculty, having just emerged from the Civil War, knew that they had fought on behalf of people like James Conyers to have the opportunity to do what he was trying to do. But the peer group was not tolerant and literally hazed him out of the institution. In the records, it indicates he left because of failing grades, but that was just an excuse. Yeah, we'll have on loan, we're going to start up our, our exhibit on the 175th anniversary of the Academy. So hopefully very, whenever we open to the public again, we'll have that exhibit ready. But one of the items we'll display is a book that's on loan to us from a retired admiral. And that book belonged to James Conyers. It was his seamanship book. And all I've seen the book. All through the book, you see the phrase, don't give up the ship, don't give up the ship, don't give up. I mean, it's like splattered throughout the, the book. So you really get a sense of his struggle to remain in and why he needs to remain in, but also that very important term that, that every 
sailor and officer knows in the United States Navy, don't give up the ship. So it took a long time. The first African-American to graduate didn't do so until 1949, Wesley A. Brown. Um, It took another 30 years for the academy to get to 5% of its population being African-American. But to be fair, at the same time, the academy has worked very hard to broaden its diversity in other ethnic minorities. So while the class of 2020 20 is about 6.5% African-American. It's about almost 20% of other non-Caucasian um, minorities. And so at this time in the class of 2020, about 25% of the class is non-majority. Uh, and I think, again, the institution recognizes in today's world what a positive diversity is and how it not only allows more people more opportunity, but seeing problems and solving problems through different people's lenses is a really important analytical tool to send graduates out into the fleet with. Um, And so I think it's a win-win across the board for both the um, midshipmen and the institution. Do World War I and World War II impact the Naval Academy? Um, So the the two world wars really embarked the Naval Academy the bookends of World War I and World War II really put the Naval Academy on a roller coaster um, because all of a sudden you've got to ramp up for all these officers in World War I and then you've got to ramp back down <laughs> because you don't need them anymore and then all of a sudden World War II comes on you've got to ramp all the way back up again. So it was, it was a really difficult um, period in, to do management and good planning. Um, interestingly, the first action they took as World War I broke out was they decreased, they compressed the years. So you graduated in three years instead of four. And they repeated that cycle in World War II as well because they found they could do about 88% of the academic training in three years. They cut out the junior year, so you were a fourth, a third, and then a first. You just sort of leapt over second year. Um, obviously, one of the things they were not able to do is summer cruises because they were compacting the year. Um, but I think the strategy at that point was you're going to have plenty of experience when you get to the fleet, so we're not going to focus on that quite so much. The other thing they did um, in both world wars is they um, the academy brought reserve officers onto campus, and that was a way to augment the officer corps. Um, and so they built temporary dormitories actually right out on the yard um, during World War One, and I think also during World War Two. I'd have to confirm that fact. Um, and then the last thing they do as they're straining at the seams, so to speak, um, during these world wars is they fill in what's now known as Sherman Field. And that's uh, 22 acres uh, of infill um, because they literally need more land and they just can't figure out how to, where to put everybody. Um, and that happens in 1941. So those are the kind of big impacts of the, on the institution itself. How do you characterize what happens to the academy after the Second World War? I characterize that as some really strategic rethinking. Um, And it's not just at the academy. The entire military establishment in the post-World War II period um, is really having to rethink itself and its role. um, Because what they don't want to do is do what they did after World War I, where huge military expansion and then everything shrinks back down. And in post-World War II, the sort of global engagement of the United States in leadership and saying, we're not going to make that mistake again. We're not going to retreat. We're going to provide global leadership means the military has to rethink itself as well. Um, And what's really interesting in the research I did uh, specifically about the Naval Academy's um, role in that 
is they felt they had to have an officer corps about 50,000 officers to deal with the post-World War II needs over time, sort of strategically long range. And they weren't sure how they were going to fill that with the institution they had at hand in 1945. So they launched an um, uh, investigative board, and they came up with three alternatives that they presented to the Pentagon and the president in order to fulfill this mandate. The first was keep the Naval Academy at four years and then do a separate two-year postgraduate programs at select civilian colleges. So you'd go to Boston College or George Washington or wherever you were going, and you'd get your four-year degree, and then you'd enroll at George Washington in a two-year postgraduate program, and you would come out as a commissioned officer. So that was option one. Option two was let's create a second academy on the West Coast, like let's cut and paste Annapolis from the East Coast to the West Coast. That, that was after the second. There, there, that I was post-World War II. There, there was a proposal like that, I think in 38 or 39 as well, that they must have drawn from, which suggested having a, a naval academy here, a naval academy in the Gulf Coast, and a naval academy in the Pacific, yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of what was driving that was, you have to remember, this was the days when travel was not that easy. And so the thought of being able to draw on talent from two geographic areas where families would feel more comfortable sending their sons to be educated made mm -hmm. a lot of sense. And then the third option was keep the Naval Academy as it stood and combine it with an expanded Navy ROTC program um, inside select uh, civilian colleges. And that last one is the one they chose to execute. And that is how in the post-World War II era, they continued to feed what was necessary to keep the Officer Corps healthy um, in the fleet at whole. The other interesting thing I found in my research or through Jim Cheever's history is there was a proposal at the time, again, trying to rethink the whole um, military uh, construct, was why is there not just one military school? I mean, military is the military. Like, why do we need West Point and Annapolis? And we're talking about having an Air Force now. We've got the Coast Guard. Why don't we just mash them all together and call it the US Military Academy? And it was Admiral Holloway who led the charge on behalf of not only the Naval Academy, but West Point as well, saying these are unique institutions and what, while leaders are leaders, Navy needs specific skill sets and Army needs specific, and certainly now that you're going to establish the Air Force, and so they won the day that kept the, the institution separate. But that was a real interesting debate, shall we say. A hundred years from now, as historians are looking back on significant periods as you've looked at in this monograph, what do you think are some more recent changes that have happened in the, at the Naval Academy that will be significant to them? I would certainly say, uh, if, if I define sort of recent, and it's sad this is the way you look at it, but for me, recent is post-9-11. I mean, it's 19 years ago, um, and... Um, I think that is sort of a break in history that's going to, especially from a military standpoint and the, the impact it had on military thinking, um, on asymmetrical warfare um, and all that it brought with it. For the Naval Academy, what that meant was really refocusing on some new areas, languages. Chinese and Arabic became huge focuses because they, again, need to feed the officer corps with people, as you mentioned, who can be out there in those languages providing good intelligence, et cetera, to our military um, leadership. Technology is huge. I mean, this is sort of 9-11, 2001, sort of 
is sort of on the cusp of that whole email internet late 90s early 2000s and for the first time they offer a bs in information technology um, post 9-11 um, so that again speaks to the role of technology it also speaks to the role of um, recruiting great talent to the Naval Academy because kids who want to be in that field can see that field as part of their Naval service and that's important. Um, and sort of a tangent to that is the establishment of the Cyber Warfare Center, which um, is now the Center for Cybersecurity Studies, um, which is the last huge new building to be completed on the yard, May of 2020, um, and named for Grace Hopper, the great rear admiral in um, computers in the Navy. Um, and one of the best guests ever on David Letterman's old show. I am going to have to look that one oh, up. Oh, absolutely. Look at it. Grace Hopper, just go on YouTube, Grace Hopper, David Letterman. I remember, I remember the night she was on and just knocked everybody's socks off. She was incredible. Yeah, so that, that's, I mean, I think that's something historians are going to look at as a, mm. as a seminal shift. Um, and then the other big one is um, 2003, Isabel. Um, for those of you who don't know, here in Annapolis, Hurricane Isabel blew up the Chesapeake and inundated the town of Annapolis and the Naval Academy. And there was, I believe it was over seven-foot surge um, the soccer fields were underwater. The parking lots were underwater. There were millions and millions of dollars of damage to the science labs, flooded hallways, basements, just unpassable. And it really made the Naval Academy as an institution say, if we are going to stay here and we intend to stay here, we have got to deal with this issue. And so for the last 17 years, they have been developing a strategy in conjunction with the city, but also for their own institution. And they have adopted something what they call armor, adapt, and abandon. And um, the science says that by 2050, which today is only 30 mm -hmm. years away, uh, it could be three and a half feet higher without big tides, without big winds. Just the norm could be three and a half feet higher than it is today. So uh, the academy has gone through an intensive process where they have identified every piece of infrastructure to either be armored, i.e., it will resist all that Mother Nature can throw at us. Mm -hmm. It will be adapted so that it can flood as needed and then be put back online quickly and easily, or it will be abandoned at some point. And no, I don't know which buildings are in which categories. That is not public information. I <laughs> but I think those are going to be the big challenges. And, and some of them are related to the students, and some of them are related to the place. Um, and I, as I sort of conclude this, in all the research I did and all the work I did with Jim is, I think the Naval Academy kind of breaks down into to three big categories. It's, a, it's, its history is about a place, its history is about its people, and its history is about its purpose. And those are the things that are gonna remain 100 years from now, that historians are still gonna be saying who was there and where were they and what were they doing to accomplish their mission? Sharon Kennedy, local preservationist, thanks so much for sharing this and for you, the work you've done with Jim in this forthcoming monograph. We look forward to its release. Thanks for having me. And for our listeners, thanks for joining us again on Preble Hall. Hope you enjoyed it. If you liked uh, the show, please leave feedback wherever you're listening to this and have a great day.
Preble Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.